This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. We'll also be joined today by Will Peck, who's the Head of Strategy and Emerging Technologies at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Will and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Lutrich Affiliates. Professor, a lot going on in the markets, a little bit on Trump not going away. We've got a little bit of the impeachment uh, trial, but the markets are all-time highs. They're sort of still kicking in there. Yeah, uh, uh, it's really going according to to the book that we've laid out for the last, uh, what what is it, almost eight, eight, nine months now. and uh, I think the big thing is the inflation threat um, is finally getting into conscience. First of all, the 10-year at, uh, has, has hit a cyclical high of 119. More importantly, uh, the difference between the 10-year and the TIFs, which is a measure of inflationary expectations, has hit a 9-year high. Um, uh, and we just got University of Michigan one year, uh, expectations of inflation, um, 3.3%. That was the highest one year expectation in 10 years. Um, and I, what this all means is, uh, inflation announcements, CPI announcements are going to get more and more attention by the market in terms of, of what's going to happen. When we got a, a lower-than-expected inflation announcement for the month of January, we saw a big rally. Uh, don't forget, that's backward-looking. Look at the CRB index. It's well above now the level pre-pandemic. Uh, other indicators well above that level. And uh, listen, the Biden stimulus package uh, has not even been passed yet. It will pass maybe slightly cut down, but it will pass. More stimulus, more inflation, great for stocks, terrible for bonds. Um, uh, you know, this is just playing it out. Bitcoin, wow, you know, as I'm looking at it, 47650 I mean, uh, you know, we saw BNY Mellon say it, it, it'll take it as custodial. We see MasterCharge saying it might use some of it for settlement. Of course, we have uh, Tesla buying 1.5 a billion of it. Um, uh, and these are these are these are the themes that are going on. The push on the economy, stocks being real assets, uh, leveraged stocks. I think even being more important. And the poor bondholder is going to be left uh, holding the bag. Yeah, we've been talking about how you think it could get to 2% on the 10-year this year and uh, sort of challenging why things like gold are, are interesting. Is, is is the story on gold just Bitcoin's dominance that uh, yeah. no, nobody wants gold right now? Yeah, just... in fact, you know, gold is being yeah, trashed as, uh, you know, uh, the old the old person's uh, asset. And that's why it really um, has not rallied. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think it is a better hedge uh, than Bitcoin. But Bitcoin has the imagination of young people. Um, people don't quite know how it's, you know, Tesla says it can accept uh, payment in Bitcoin. It's quite not sure. Well, it's going to be quoted in dollars. Then you have to convert to Bitcoin. Are they going to charge you the fee that it is back and forth? Uh, we mentioned the fact that we, we the central banks have to come together 
start the digital currencies themselves, which are actually far more efficient at making transactions than Bitcoin. Now, um, uh, so Bitcoin might be a store of value, but if it doesn't have the utility of a transaction, one really wonders, you know, how this uh, price can be maintained. But hey, is it going to fifty thousand? Probably. Could it go to a hundred? Very prominently. I mean, the bandwagon is there. The technicals are strong, um, but you know, if you want to play that game, fine. I'm not going to pass a judgment on that game. I think the main game in town, which is what we've been talking about in terms of stocks and bonds, is uh, playing exactly uh, according to our book. You know, the some of the, the, the Powells have said if we get inflation higher, um, the Fed's not going to do anything. They're going to sit on their hands. We've got Bullard coming on in a few weeks to talk about his view. Do you think the Fed would – like when do you think the Fed would take action if, if your inflation thesis takes hold? Yeah. Well, uh, again um, – uh, they're they're going over two percent. They say they want to go over two percent. They 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 can look at the year over year core. Well, you know, year over year is the last twelve months. So you need a number of months that are quite high to start first getting over that two percent. Then they say they're going to go over two percent. So how high? Maybe two and a half. Um, and we're going to have to see what happens to commodities, how big a boom there is. With high unemployment, as we talked about, the political pressures are extremely strong. Wet inflation ripped. Wages are doing, by the way, extremely well. So wages are holding up. So who's going to be complaining? I mean, you know, who's going to be the complaining? Only the bondholders. Um, I don't know if their constituency is very strong right now in a democratic government. Um, and, uh, so, you know, let, let them be burned a bit. Um, uh, but clearly, you know, I mean, 2% 10 year leads to what, you know, uh, uh, a 4% mortgage rate in a strong, that's not going to stop the housing market. Again, again, we're not going to start doing anything until people start screaming, hey, these rates are going up. They're telling us, you know, we've got to start acting against it. And I, I think we're still very, very far away from that. Well, Professor, thanks for some commentary to start our show today. Um, appreciate that. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you. Um, we're going to be turning our focus. Let me just reintroduce. We're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're going to bring on our two guests for the hour. Uh, Ari Paul, who's co-founder and chief investment officer at Block Tower Capital. We sort of talked about Bitcoin at the start of the show. That was actually the nicest comments I've heard Professor Siegel make on Bitcoin, Ari. Uh, usually he's, he's calling it a little bit of a bubble. So we've got a little convert as you're prepared to come on. And we also have Will Peck, who's sort of head of uh, – Corporate Strategies, Emerging Technologies at Wisdom Tree. Um, so, so Ari, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to crypto. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. I'll, I'll keep this part very brief because I'm, I'm, I think, the most boring thing going on that we can talk about. Um, so I, I came from traditional finance. I was a options market maker at Susquehanna International Group, uh, as well as commodity trader there. And then I was a portfolio manager for University of Chicago's uh, $8 billion endowment. And I, I came to crypto really from both angles, which was um, at the endowment, we were constantly asking, man, it's so hard to get alpha from this market. We're invested with the best managers in the world, and we're thrilled that they can eke out 3% alpha a year. You know, we know markets are, if not efficient, at least certainly very competitive. Um, and where do you look for alpha? And, and we were naturally talking about, you know, new markets, new uh, geographies. We'd be looking at frontier BC and Africa. And so from that angle to me, cryptocurrency was a no-brainer as a place to uh, where active trading could add alpha because it was so wildly inefficient because the pros weren't in the game yet when I got it in 2017. And, and for the most part, still aren't, by the way. And the other angle being, um, why well, I guess that's kind of the both. That's the trading and the endowment allocation angle. Basically, uh, like to, to use, you know, very, very Wall Street lingo, um, there's tremendous risk in cryptocurrency, but it's largely diversifying risk. So things like counterparty risk, custodial risk, operational risk, game theory risk of exploits in some of these uh, game theory systems, all of that is very real risk. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not here to kind of shill anything and pretend this isn't risky. But as a portfolio manager, the holy grail, the thing you're desperately looking for is idiosyncratic alpha, right? It's a source of return where the risk is uncorrelated to the other risks in your portfolio. And from that angle, uh, cryptocurrency was a screaming no-brainer to me in my endowment 
Um, so I, I, I ended up launching a crypto uh, investment firm in 2017 because I realized that endowment contentions were a couple of years away, and I, I wasn't, couldn't do all that much good at my feet at UChicago. Uh, so we were trying to kind of build the crypto investment firm that in a couple of years an endowment could feel comfortable allocating to, that had the um, you know proper institutional safeguards and um, you know operational processes that, that a traditional investor could get comfortable with. And so how are those conversations going? So you were once like doing the due diligence on those type of firms and now sort of trying to get them to raise, to, to, to invest in your firm. How, how is that adoption coming along? Sure. Um, so uh, we don't have exact numbers because the endowments are, uh, you know, not totally transparent on their holdings, but um, at least four of the 10 largest endowments have direct hold, uh, cryptocurrency holdings. Um, actually, let me let me rephrase that. Uh, not necessarily direct. So um, I believe that two have direct Bitcoin holdings. Another two to three are invested in crypto funds. Um, my firm, we actually haven't talked to an endowment in two or three years uh, to pitch because, frankly, it's, I'm, I'm so familiar with the long sales cycle. And our view was this is a fast moving space. We we want to kind of get to scale quickly. So we actually haven't pitched an endowment Um but they, some of our, uh, I'll, I'll call them competitors, although frankly, it's such a small industry, we think of them as more colleagues. Uh, we do have some colleagues in the industry who um, do have endowment investments. Uh, a small number of pensions have allocated. Um, uh, I think, I believe there's now half a dozen insurance companies that have added Bitcoin to their balance sheet. Obviously, you have MicroStrategy and now Tesla with Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Um, so it's still early days in the sense that these are generally small allocations. Um, at the endowment level, you know, they're writing it's 50 basis points. It's 1% of their portfolio is being allocated to crypto funds or Bitcoin directly. So lots and lots of room for that to grow as a percentage. Um, I, on the other, uh, other piece of institutional, uh, on the family office side, by 2017, most of the largest family offices in the country had some crypto exposure. Family offices generally move a bit faster. They have less, uh, internal bureaucracy, um, Let's see what other what other types of investors should we cover. I mean, VCs, the biggest brand name VCs, USB, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Benchmark, those guys were all allocating to crypto startups back in 2012 to 2014. So really, what we're seeing in, in this cycle is um, you know publicly listed companies adding Bitcoin to the balance sheet, pensions, insurance companies, who were who were generally kind of the slowest moving institutions. Uh, obviously, um, you had uh, Bank of New York Mellon just added uh, Bitcoin support. JP Morgan's talking about adding trading support, although, to be fair, a lot of the banks have been talking about this for four years. Uh, it's a slow process. But I think basically this is the cycle where over the next year or two, we'll see this become pretty mainstream. Um, I don't think we'll have huge market penetration, by the way. I don't think we're going to, you know, I don't think that many companies will follow in Tesla's footsteps. We'll probably get, you know, dozens of smaller ones. But my guess is if we look at the 20 biggest companies in the U.S. in three years, um, certainly not the majority, maybe only three or four will have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So th this is, you know, it's going to progress slowly. But for an asset class as small as cryptocurrency, these are gigantic sums of money. You know, $1.5 billion is a lot relative to Bitcoin's market cap. All right. Well, so we, I, I follow you closely on Twitter. You know, you've been uh, sort of very public there on, on a lot of your views on how things are developing. I remember reading a, a, a thread, which is what caused me to reach out to you, just saying, like, in terms of all your ideas, sort of the, you had this Bitcoin is going to play out in a certain way. And it's playing out sort of exactly as you sort of in some ways thought. I mean, how, maybe describe that cycle um, and, and sort of the big idea behind it and, and how you see the phases of this sort of bull market and, and how you think about navigating the different phases of this market? Sure. Um, so I'm, I have no credentials as an economic historian or anything like that, but I, I, I've tried to, I've always been fascinated by economic history and tried to learn as much as I could about, um, you know, cycles far, uh, far before my time. Um, and if you look at everything from railroads in the 19th century to, uh, you know, early computers in the 1960s to the internet in the 1990s, um, basically every tech adoption cycle in history, I think there's lessons to be learned. And most follow some very high level similar patterns. And um, something I, I like referencing the Gardner hype cycle, which is a very simple idea. It was branded by a consultant company. It's basically just this idea that a new technology emerges. Everyone gets incredibly excited about it. They correctly say this is going to change the world. It's going to be massive in scale. 
but what they get wrong is the speed. So, um, and, and this ends up forming a bunch of mini cycles as well. But, but uh, so I'll use the internet as, a, as the example we're probably all most familiar with. In 1999, everyone correctly said, we're all going to be buying everything over the internet. Everything's going to be internet related, uh, whether it's social interactions, which we now, of course, you know, social media, we all are believers. Um, but, you know, back in, say, 1999, the idea that most of our social interactions would take place over the Internet was certainly a pretty aggressive prediction. Um, same with, say, online commerce. There were online retailers in 1995. They all failed because it was just too early. It wasn't the wrong idea. The idea that you were going to buy jeans over the Internet with a credit card, that was correct. But it was a decade too early in 1995. You didn't have and, – and, and why was all this stuff so early? Why did it take a decade longer than everyone thought? Well, a bunch of different things. You didn't have the infrastructure, right? People were on dial-up. You, you can't stream sports on dial-up. You didn't have the user base. Uh, in, in let me get, try to get the numbers right. Um, I believe by 1999, you still had less than two percent of the world with internet access. It was more than 10 percent of Americans, but it was a tiny, tiny fraction of the addressable market of most consumer products. Then you didn't have the plumbing around things like credit card payments. It was unwieldy to integrate credit card payments. Consumers didn't trust giving their credit card information over the internet. So you just said, you know, uh, obstacles to consumer behavior, obstacles on the infrastructure side. And we're seeing all of that. Basically, every single one of those obstacles to Internet adoption has been true for cryptocurrency. Um, and so when critics say, man, this is never going to work because it doesn't scale. Bitcoin can only handle 14 transactions per second. They're correct in their criticism. It's also just a matter of time. Right. So the same exact statement was made about the Internet in 1994. Guys, this is never going to be useful for anything commercial because everyone's on, on dial-up and you can't do anything on dial-up. Well, that was correct. It was just wrong in that that's a very uh, temporal prediction. So um, where I think we are, basically, Bitcoin is kind of past its, its, its critical hype cycle, and, and you could argue that there's a few. But um, in 2017, there was definitely a hype that Bitcoin was about to be adopted by institutions. And my own view at the time, I, I was, frankly, a little bit naive about this. My own timelines were a little bit too aggressive. Um, but if you, were, if, if you came from Wall Street and you know how uh, complex and delicate and unwieldy things like the prime broker system are, the stock settlement system, you can appreciate that this, this can't immediately be adopted by large institutions. There's so much plumbing that has to be turned over. You know, it, it's a little bit like if you're trying to roll out electric cars, uh, well, you need electric charging, charging stations everywhere. And that takes time. So even if everyone wanted to buy an electric car the first day the first Tesla rolled off, you know, you just don't have the infrastructure. Um, so what, what's happened, I think, is that um, Bitcoin, here's a rough analogy. Bitcoin was a little bit like email. So in 1972, we got the first versions of email. It wasn't. It was 20 years later. 20 years later that we got the World Wide Web, which is what most call the Internet today. That's a 20-year gap between the proof of concept and the first, you know, kind of modern version. And then it was another 10 years before there were any real use cases at meaningful scale. So, you know, 1999 we had a tech bubble, but the reality was hardly anyone in the world used the Internet for anything meaningful. Um, and the uses that were used were very, very simple and basic and easily dismissed. You know, chat rooms. Uh, online newspapers, um, streaming stock data. That was basically the only stuff at scale by the late 90s. You had lots of other companies. You had Amazon in existence. You had, um, you know, Pets.com. You had all sorts of online retailers, but they weren't doing meaningful volume. They were less than 2% of all retail sales. So um, Bitcoin is kind of like email, which is it, it's a very, very simple idea, simple impl implementation, and it's proven and now uh, along, you know, it's more than a decade after its launch, it's kind of reaching maturity for its simplest use cases. Ethereum launched in 2014. That's kind of like World Wide Web. Um, these are imperfect analogies, of course, but um, and it took basically three to five years after Ethereum launched before there was any real usage on it. By real, I mean non-trivial dollar amounts. So now what we've seen in the last basically 18 months is the explosion of the first real uses of cryptocurrency. And it's largely been two things. Decentralized finance, so decentralized exchanges. Um, an example of that is Uniswap built on Ethereum that currently does something like a billion dollars of volume a day. Um, and that's, that's real trading volume. Obviously, a billion is trivial compared to the 90, but you know, we're getting into uh, the start, at least, of real numbers. And then the other being uh, digital art and collectibles. So NFTs, non-fungible tokens, um, 
this is an incredible parabolic growth right now. It's still very small in dollar terms. We probably had something like $100 million of sales in the last year. But it's such a parabolic growth trajectory. Um, I, I'm, I would very confidently predict that'll be a billion dollars over the next two years. Um, and that's people basically collecting uh, or trading or playing with um, the digital equivalents of things like uh, NBA cards, for example. So one of the top performing NFTs is something called Top Shot, which is actually not built on Ethereum. It's built on a competitor called Flow. And they licensed the NBA IP. And they sold $30 million of N- digital NBA collectible cards in their first two months of existence. And those cards are currently worth uh, more than double that. So those are early, early use cases. Another one that I expect to see um, grow parabolically this full cycle is gaming. Um, these are relatively simple use cases that are naturally a good fit for, uh, for decentralization and for kind of a digital currency platform. Um, I'll use DeFi as an example. I think DeFi is on the wrong side of the Gartner hype cycle, which is to say it's doing incredibly well right now. I think it's likely to do insanely well over the next year or two of this bull market. But then people are going to be in for a rude awakening. I expect a vicious crash because people will be saying, wow, this is technology that's going to replace banks, replace stock exchanges, and it's going to transform the world. And they're right. But the reality is the technology is currently it's, it's at the sandbox level. It's early, it's risky, it's buggy, it's exploitable. Um, it's just, it's a toy. And it's a toy that has something like, uh, it, actually, I don't, it, this number's changing so fast, I'm going to be out of date already, but it has something like $30 billion of value locked in it. Um, and that's not the market cap, by the way. That's People have stored $30 billion of value in this ecosystem, um, and there's something like $2 billion a day of active trading volume within it. Uh, you also have lending. But the reality is this is incredibly risky. And so sooner or later, and, and, and there are losses every month. Every month there's a hack, there's an exploit. Um, and the crypto native crowd that's storing this value it has such a high risk tolerance that they tolerate that. So I think what's going to happen is as we get broader adoption of DeFi, there's going to be a new group of people who, who do not expect that, do not expect losses, do not expect, you know, similar to Bitcoin in 2017 where new retail got in and they didn't really think about or expect that this is a hyperbolic asset that can have 80% drawdown. And so the minute Bitcoin started correcting, they were like, wow, this, this breaks my understanding of what Bitcoin is. I thought it was supposed to be a store of value, you know. Um, the older yep. Bitcoin holders, people who had been in before 2017, understand it's still an early asset and it's hyperbolic, and so their faith was not shaken. So um, on Bitcoin, I think we're on the right side of the Gardner hype cycle, that basically people kind of know what it is and are adopting it for what it is. For many other crypto use cases, we're still in the kind of the, the wrong part of the cycle where um, there's a tremendous amount of hype and the hype is correct, but early. Well, uh, me, so that's my rough let, metal model well, for the space. Can we, let, I, I think it's, and I don't know if we need to, this is Will jumping in here, but I think it's helpful to kind of break that down because when I talk to people who aren't in the space, you know, people just kind of lump in cryptocurrencies into one large bucket, when really it's kind of, they're all representative of a similar, not the same technology. But if you're an investor, they all have very different investment use cases. Like, I think you could make the case with Bitcoin, like Professor Siegel was at the start, that, I mean, one of the funny things about Bitcoin is probably the, co- the closest corollary from a financial asset perspective is the oldest financial asset, gold, right? Deflationary asset, limited supply, and I'm not actually sure there's that much more development that needs to happen for Bitcoin to fulfill that use case as a deflation, a structurally deflationary asset like gold has done for thousands of years. Do you agree with that? I agree completely. And I'll add another point that I think um, Professor Siegel may not fully appreciate. Um, so, and, and this is something that distinguishes Bitcoin from gold in this regard. Bitcoin, when we, when we use the word, it's almost misleading because Bitcoin yeah. really means two things. There's the asset, and, and, and Will, I know you know this, so I'm, I'm, this is more for the listeners. Um, you know, Bitcoin is both an asset and a protocol. And as a protocol, it's a horrible payment rail. It's horrible as a payment rail. It's already obsolete technology. But as an asset, uh, the, the cryptocurrency blockchains, the, the underlying technology enables seamless swapping and movement of Bitcoin on other protocols. So as an analogy, U.S. dollars are an asset. I can move U.S. dollars using the SWIFT banking system or on PayPal or Venmo. We all know how terrible SWIFT is, right? It's kind of amazing. If the U.S. dollar, if we think of it as a banking asset, shuts down almost half of the time, right? I can't transfer it at night. I can't transfer it on weekends or banking holidays. 
It's insane. But I can transfer it basically 24-7 in small amounts on something like Venmo or PayPal. So similarly, Bitcoin as a protocol is something like SWIFT in the sense that it's obsolete, it's bad technology, we can all imagine much, much, much better payment rails. But the nice thing is, um, similar to USD, except much more, e- much more easily, you can do this in a trustless way. I-, I can actually do this right now. I can take Bitcoin, I can put it on the Ethereum network or one of other networks, and I can transfer it on the Ethereum network, and I can make use of any features that exist on Ethereum or any features. Another example is Lightning Network, which is kind of a, it's almost, you can think of it a little bit like PayPal sitting on top of Bitcoin. Uh, and Lightning Network um, is, has much, much lower fees and enables much faster transactions. So I, I, what I expect to see is a proliferation of other technological protocols with different optimizations. And you'll be able to transfer Bitcoin across any of them. If you want extreme security, you might use Bitcoin Layer 1. If you want speed and low fees to transfer 20 bucks, where you don't need the equivalent of Fort Knox kind of backing, you know, supporting that $20 of value, you'll do it on Lightning Network. So it's not really a limitation. The fact that Bitcoin Layer 1 is ossified and basically obsolete really doesn't introduce anything other than a very short-term problem as we work on building out these higher-level protocols. Yeah, I mean, to me, the bigger barrier for Bitcoin as payments, at least in the near term, is volatility, right? At least, you know, Professor Siegel gave the example of, is Tesla pricing their cars in Bitcoin, or are they pricing it in dollars and converting it to Bitcoin? If you're pricing it in dollars and converting it into Bitcoin, then effectively the volatility of Bitcoin USD matters. And, you know, you don't want to be waking up one day and thinking, oh, shoot, that car I just bought, I paid 20% more for it uh, than I thought I was going to because, you know, we live in a USD world today, at least, um, in terms of how you're pricing goods and services. Well, that's the story of the people who paid for all their pizza and Bitcoin, right? Who, who, the, the early, the early people who bought pizza boxes in Bitcoin and how much they paid and now Bitcoin's so much higher and how much they, they spent on that? Yeah, Bitcoin is not a unit of account today. There's no question about that. You know, economists define money as a store of value plus a medium of exchange plus a unit of account. Bitcoin is a weak medium of exchange um, technologically. I think that will improve. It's definitely not a unit of account. No one prices anything in Bitcoin terms, as you say. Um, I, you can spend Bitcoin at most online merchants today because they, they use intermediaries who will convert Bitcoin for them, but nothing is priced in Bitcoin. And I don't think that's going to change uh, immediately, because, and it doesn't need to change. Um, the U.S. dollar is pretty stable. Even if we get you know, 4 or 5% inflation, that doesn't send people running to use an alternative. Um, and so I don't think Bitcoin is competing to be a medium of exchange or a unit of account anytime soon. Where we could see it become a unit of account um, is in countries where there is no alternative. So, for example, um, you know, yes, Bitcoin is hyperinflationary. At some point fairly soon, it may start looking attractive to Venezuelans or to Nigerians or to you know, countries where um, there is this, you know, there's comparable volatility in their native currencies. But uh, I don't see any reason why a U.S. resident would want to price things in Bitcoin. You know, as long as the U.S. dollar is relatively stable, that's just not a pain point. Um, and I, for me, at least, the value proposition of Bitcoin doesn't require that. I, I think Bitcoin has a $30 trillion plus addressable market just as a store value. This has been really interesting. We have the whole hour with Ari Paul. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Um, you know, we started to talk about Bitcoin, the big cycle at the beginning of the show here, Ari. Um, I think one of the things that we think about, you know, there's been enormous gains in Bitcoin. Uh, and a lot of people look at the gains and say, is there more to come? How do we think about the huge price rises? Um, if we're, if people who aren't invested yet, how do you, how should they be thinking about valuations and, and where this thing can go over time um, before we think about how they sell when things get to those price objectives? But how do, how do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, this is on everyone's mind, I think, and I certainly obsess over it as a active investment manager. Um, I think it's very difficult to. I, I generally don't play kind of public prognosticator uh, in the short-term trading sense. Um, so, what I will say, high level though, is um, certainly for someone who isn't trying to actively trade assets, um, a buy and hold approach generally makes sense. I would offer the same advice that you know is generally considered uh, good good wisdom for the crowd on stocks, which is you know, don't try to actively trade, buy an index. In crypto, indices don't quite work. It's a very, very different dynamic. Um, the closest thing to a crypto index is basically Bitcoin. Maybe you could argue uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum 
Um, let's not say those are the only valuable assets, but it, it, we're not quite at the stage yet where we can really think in index terms. But on the price question, what I would say is, um, while we're up a huge amount from the lows, we're actually only at two and a half times the 2017 highs. And the amount of, uh, and that was certainly a bubble price, the highs in 2017 of over 19,000. There was a lot of short-term speculative mania in that, a lot of levered retail purchases uh, that got washed out. Um, but with all that said, there's been so much growth in the industry in terms of plumbing around things like prime brokerage and custody, uh, around institutional offerings, around onboarding, uh, onboarding ramps. So for example, retail, as they come into cryptocurrency this cycle, they can now purchase Bitcoin through Robinhood, through PayPal, through Square. Um, so it, 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 the Financial Times on January 1st, their, their front page was Bitcoin being integrated into the global financial system, which is, I, I think, accurate. That's kind of happening before our eyes. And so, you know, how, how much growth in the asset class does that warrant? Well, it's tricky. Um, at, a, at a really high level, if you're a long-term investor, I, I think thinking in terms of addressable market is reasonable. Gold is $7 trillion. The offshore banking system is $30 trillion. I think the addressable market here for the winner, um, so actually a slight step back, uh, there's a rough, excuse me, a rough consensus that we're likely to have a power law distribution of cryptocurrency market caps. I personally agree with that um, in that it's very, very likely this won't be winner take all. I think you're going to have a lot of cryptocurrencies with various niches, but you are likely to have one dominant cryptocurrency or maybe two or three that serves the role as global store of value, that is depreciation resistant, that is competition resistant. And, and that's probably at least a $100 trillion use case. Um, and I say that, it's hard to come up with a specific number, but basically if everyone had the opportunity to access a Swiss bank in their pocket, if everyone had the ability to store value uh, in a way that uh, a central bank couldn't, couldn't depreciate, um, how much demand is there for that asset? And maybe in the United States, it's not huge because the U.S. dollar is relatively disinflationary, even at four or five percent. That's not terrible. But much of the world, you know, is very it's a very different situation. India just had demonetization a few years ago. South Korea has capital controls. China has arbitrary con- and Russia has arbitrary confiscations. The majority of the world's population has desperate demand for an asset that can't that can't easily be confiscated or depreciated to nothing. So I, I think it's a huge use case. And then we kind of work backwards and say, well, what are the odds Bitcoin captures that? And that's, this is very tricky. As, as an, I, I think these, uh, Bitcoin is maybe like a Series C VC investment at this point. And it's, it's obvi- you know, very hard to say, what are the odds that this startup is going to capture this giant market? Um, my own view, and this is a rough guess, is that over a 20-year horizon, it's something like 50-50, that it's Bitcoin. Uh, so when I do the, the kind of expected value math, I end up with it still being an incredibly attractive investment because let's say I'm wrong and it's not 50%, let's say it's 10% to capture a, uh, and let's say I'm wrong on the addressable market, let's say it's a $50 trillion addressable market, that would create a present value of, well, that would create a future value of $5 trillion, and you would discount that to present. Um, of course, those variables are all guesses that I'm throwing out, but my point is uh, there's still tremendous upside on a 10, 20-year horizon. When we talk about this cycle, um, every previous Bitcoin cycle would have us going at least 10 times above the previous all-time high. This cycle might not look like previous ones in either direction, of course. I'm not anchoring to that. But it's worth noting that so far, this has not been that big of a rally, right? We're, we're, we're a little bit more than two times the 2017 high, despite massive, massive growth in the user base and the, uh, you know, the, the market participant uh, group. Um, what I look at as a trader is, kind of the a very order flow mentality. So what's happening right now, well, Q4 was billionaire FOMO. That was when um, billionaires were either upsizing their allocations, and um, this was largely U.S. billionaires. People who had put in in 2013 or 2017, 1% of the net worth into Bitcoin were upsizing to 3 or 5 or 10. Uh, billionaires who didn't have any felt like they weren't buying Bitcoin to get rich. They were buying Bitcoin because so many of their billionaire friends had 10% of their net worth in Bitcoin and were expecting 10x returns on that, that they, they, the thinking was more, man, okay, I'm the 30th richest man in the world. If my buddies Zuckerberg and Shamas and Cuban all have 10% of their net worth in Bitcoin and Bitcoin 1020Xs, so I still get invited to the parties. Do I, it's almost like keeping up with the Joneses billionaire style. Um, 
Now what we've been seeing since the start of the new year is the start of retail coming in. Uh, we started seeing mass onboardings of retail to places like Coinbase, buying through Robinhood um, and, and Square and, and onboarding ramps like that. We've seen Asia get much more involved. So historically, uh, cryptocurrency bull runs generally started in the Western Hemisphere and then often ended with a kind of speculative mania in Korea and China in particular. Uh, I don't know if that pattern will repeat, but it seems to be so far. And we've just started seeing um, kind of a leadership in the market gains coming from Asia. Uh, in contrast, by the way, in Q4, even though Bitcoin rallied tremendously, um, it was up roughly 200%. If you had sold Bitcoin every night at 8 p.m. and bought it back at 6 a.m., you would have doubled your returns. Bitcoin was selling off basically every night and rallying every day because U.S. Uh, Westerners were buying, Asians were selling and that dynamic basically stops with the new year, and now we're, we're sometimes getting kind of rallies uh, at night. So where I think, I think we're in, if we measure a bull run from the absolute bottom of the bear, so the absolute bottom was December 2018, Bitcoin at $3,000. If we measure from there, my guess is, and this is just a humble guess, that we're in something like the seventh inning of this bull run. We're at the equivalent of something like March, April 2017. I say this is a very rough analogy. I'm not trying to predict an exact time frame or price level. But my baseline expectation is that we'll get something like Bitcoin probably doing a 3 to 5x from here and altcoins substantially outperforming that. My guess is that um, that something like Ethereum probably gives us 5 to 15x. I, I say that not as a prediction. This is just my rough guess, my target, and I'll be updating information you know, as I get it. It's very interesting. I mean, some of the technical people I follow have talked about this cycle going to 100 to 160. And it's so interesting. I was like, where do they come up with 160? And just hearing your rough math of, you know, the last bull runs went uh, to almost 10 times. I mean, that's not far from that 10 times that 2017 high. So it's sort of interesting on, on, on how to frame that. Why, why do you think the Ethereum goes higher than Bitcoin? What's the, the thesis behind Ethereum moving more in this sort of next cycle here? Um, most, but to put it most simply, Ethereum is high beta in the sense, uh, as are most altcoins. Um, they get hit hardest in bear markets. They do best in bulls. And I think that is, that is something I'm personally betting will, will re repeat the cycle because, um, this is not unique to crypto. As we're familiar in basically all asset classes, bull runs typically start with quality assets, typically end with junk. Uh, I'm not calling any cryptocurrencies junk, but certainly things like Ethereum are riskier. And so the psychology is, People generate new money comes into Bitcoin when people first hear and learn about cryptocurrency and look to allocate. Typically, Bitcoin is their first buy. And then after Bitcoin makes new all-time highs and, and uh, substantial wealth is generated and interest is generated, people then move out along the risk curve. Uh, right? They say, OK, I just earned a 10x in Bitcoin. I'm probably not getting another 10x in Bitcoin because it's already so big. And of course, so big has changed every cycle. I mean, when Bitcoin was at $100, that was, that was up 1,000x. From, from its start, Bitcoin's first traded price was about 10 cents. So at $100, Bitcoin seemed like maybe it's too late. But, um, you know, it, it's certainly in a local sense, Bitcoin at 40,000, Bitcoin at 100,000 is going to look expensive. It's, it, you know, if you're, if you're greedy and you're looking for a quick 10x on your money, you probably say, I should look at smaller assets. I should look at, um, you know, assets with lower market cap. And so people move out along the risk curve and things like Ethereum tend to outperform. Uh, you also have a, uh, it, there's also an element of market participants. So, um, as I mentioned, the billionaires were largely first buying Bitcoin and institutions buy Bitcoin. But then when retail gets involved, they're attracted to all sorts of other narratives. They don't just want the safest, most secure, most stable asset. They're excited about things like global computing, decentralized file storage, um, you know, all of these other narratives. And all coins typically have bigger marketing budgets. Uh, and, Basically, as retail comes into the industry, heavy marketing sells them individual altcoins, some of which are, are quality, many of which are not. Um, by the way, I would advise everyone listening to this to not buy anything other than Bitcoin without careful, careful diligence. There are a lot of scams in cryptocurrency. There's a lot of junk. There's a lot of things that aren't meant to be scams, but effectively are because you have very, very uh, inexperienced teams who manage to raise $100 million out of nowhere because it's a bull market frenzy. And there's really no hope for that project because they really don't know what they're doing. So um, there are plenty of altcoins that I believe have fundamental value and will do very well. Um, and frankly, I think most altcoins will probably do well over the next year because we're, I think, at that stage of the bull market. But if, if uh, but you know, buyer beware. Um, this is something you know to tread very carefully. 
So back to kind of some of the maybe basic questions that a lot of the listeners have, you know, who've historically invested in stocks and bonds, you know, Jeremy helped Professor Siegel write stocks for the long run. I think that's certainly a belief held here. But how do you think about, you know, if you were at University of Chicago still, how would you think about what should Bitcoin be in kind of a long-term investor's portfolio if you're not a billionaire? Um, tough, a little bit tough to answer from a few different angles, but I'll, I'll just jump into my answer, actually. I, won't, I, won't, I, I have a habit of adding too many caveats. And one of my titles in Chicago was also risk specialist. So I'm, I have a risk manager mentality. Um, but to jump into my answer, um, I think Bitcoin, a direct investment in Bitcoin fits under a real assets portfolio and should be thought of as in the same category as inflation hedged assets like, um, you know, commodity, uh, oil drillers, copper miners, that kind of thing. Um, it's a better alternative to gold in a portfolio or at least a diversifying alternative to gold. So I think it fits in, in that. Um, I also think there's idiosyncratic alpha or idiosyncratic upside, however you want to, uh, whatever you want to describe this. So to me, it's very attractive. Um, but that does incorporate a little bit of a market call. There's likely, you know, if Bitcoin has a half a million dollars in a year and I'm back on your show, you know, at that point, I don't know that I would say there's, uh, po- you know, positive expected value over the next 24, you know, 24 months, let's say. So um, probably from a long term perspective, it, it, it should be part of a real asset allocation. And so if, it, if an endowment has, say, 10 to 20 percent of assets allocated to that, um, maybe Bitcoin makes up a quarter of that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, too. I mean, it's certainly something with this kind of lack of history, even though, you know, it's been operating for, you know, a, a decent amount of time now. But the volatility, you know, the future is unpredictable. And I think we've got thousands of years of human history with gold and some other assets. And we know generally how that performs in different cycles and have a good idea that sometimes it can go up a lot, you know, especially in high inflation periods for gold. Uh, with Bitcoin, you know, we've seen it perform a lot uh, in some very short periods of time. Uh, so if you know the future is unpredictable, there's certainly some positive option value associated with having a small piece of it in a kind of well-diversified portfolio. The, the interesting thing yeah, I heard, I mean, Ari, oh, sorry, Ari, sorry, I mean, I, I, you, you talked about sort of starting in options and sort of that option value uh, is interesting. And, and you you also talked about it sort of as, as a venture C, like Will is used to me, like that, that Bitcoin has this venture capital like payoff. I'm like, well, what what is the venture capital payoff? Uh, so you framed it sort of interesting on on what makes it like venture capital. Isn't it adoption, Jer? I mean, the point is that a lot of people have been able to hold other financial assets for a long period of time. And if a lot more people are able to and willing to adopt into this, move into this space, that just increases the um, the kind of potential, you know, uh, very high returns of it. I think that differs from some other financial assets that have been around for a lot longer that are more accessible to people today. And I think that's a really good point Ari made about, you know, we, we're in the United States. People love to kind of complain about the Fed and blah, 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 all this stuff. But we are very fortunate with the stability of our financial system, how well banks work, how well the dollar has held up against other, you know, purchasing power over time. Other countries do not have that same benefit. And you think the, the kind of the use case of this technology of Bitcoin, both the currency and kind of the protocol in other markets is just really, you know, impressive relative to um, how you might think about it in a Western democracy. So I think over time, you know, hopefully more and more people in these emerging economies can get access to it and uh, actually be able to use it for these, uh, you know, the benefits that they might have relative to their traditional financial institutions. Let me just uh, reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Ari Paul, the, the co-founder, chief investment officer of Block Tower Capital. We've got Will Peck, head of emerging technologies at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, Ari, so we, we talked a little bit about the the cycle, um, and and you you mentioned a little bit where you got to have this expected value framework to it. Um, and, and when you think about that that emotion to sell, like is, is there a percentage of people's portfolios where it becomes so high that 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 it, it dictates a, a seller decision before it gets to those values. How do you think about the sizing in portfolios? Yeah, this is tough. Um, and, and, and I think it's impossible to entirely separate from a market call. Uh, right. Obviously, if you think that the, if your target is Bitcoin at half a million dollars a coin, you get, you get a different kind of result of this analysis. than if you think it could eventually be, you know, $20 million a coin, let's say, um, 
So I, I'll, I'll give my own view, um, recognizing there's a few subjective inputs here. So um, I, I bought my first Bitcoin in early 2014 without really much conviction, frankly. It was an interesting idea. I didn't understand it that well. Late 2016, I kind of personally went all in. I went all in myself financially and started thinking about how do I kind of bet my career on this. Um, and at the time, my analysis was that basically um, there's a really easy 100x in front of Bitcoin uh, just from adoption growth. Nothing else needs to happen. And, and what I mean by that is it's not that I'm, I need to bet on adoption. I just need to bet on obstacles to adoption falling away. So in late 2016, for example, institutions basically couldn't buy Bitcoin. You didn't have the plumbing. You didn't have the institutional wrappers by which they could access it. Um, for example, when we have a Bitcoin ETF, there's so many institutions that will, for the first time ever, view Bitcoin as in their investable universe. Actually, let, let me reframe this from the uh, kind of classic efficient markets debate. The efficient market hypothesis um, starts with the premise that uh, we're talking about assets that every market participant could, in theory, invest in. And that works pretty well for you know things like S&P 500 stocks. Um, it doesn't work well at all for, say, VC investments, where you have an illiquid asset that very few people in the world are participating in pricing. So my thesis in late 2016, early 2017 was, here's an asset that 0.1% of the world is currently participating in pricing. And I see a really clear path how over the next year and five years, that number is going to grow 100x. The number of people who basically have access to this in a literal sense, meaning do they have a fiat on ramp that allows them to convert their local currency into Bitcoin? From a custodial sense, do they have a way to, to store it that they're going to be comfortable with? From a bureaucratic sense, you know, obviously a pension, like I'll, I'll use a concrete example. Um, at an endowment, you can't have the CIO walking around with $2 billion of Bitcoin in a hardware wallet in his pocket or her pocket, right? That's not, that's not how an endowment works. And so you need the institutional wrappers that, ha that enable risk management and controls uh, before an endowment is going to directly hold Bitcoin. And that basically in 2017, we didn't really have that. It took a couple of years. So now we, we're getting a lot closer to this being a traditional asset that most of the world has access to. We're still, I think, at 10x away. Um, a Bitcoin ETF will make a huge difference. Um, prime brokerage is something that many, many businesses in crypto are, are attacking from many angles. Uh, to, to facilitate a liquid uh, trading, lending, borrowing market. Um, and at that point, this will be a much, much, much more mature asset. At the point that, you know, um, you have real-time brokerage, easy custody, easy administrative controls, all of that, Bitcoin as an asset, at that point, will be somewhat mature. And at that point, we're probably talking about returns in a much more traditional sense. Right. I mean, you, you would probably laugh me off the show if I said a stock index, I'm predicting a 100x in four years. Um, which, by the way, Bitcoin is, is not that far off from at this point. It was $1,000 at the start of 2017. Now we're at 48000 um, You know, we, we could be at that 100x this year. We're certainly within, uh, you know, at this point, a 2x is, is a stone's throw. Um, not to say it's inevitable, but so depending on where you think that kind of ultimate addressable market is, uh, plays into this heavily, how comfortable you are kind of buying and holding through extreme volatility. Um, from my own view, uh, it does make sense to be, you know, we all have utility curves where if you put 1% of your net worth into Bitcoin four years ago, and now it makes up 70% of your portfolio because it just trounced every other asset you own. That's a wonderful problem to have, but it is a problem, right? Um, even if the perfect, even if the EV decision, the you know, the optimal trading decision is to have 100% of your assets in one thing, we all know that's not necessarily the smartest thing to do. And, and, and it's not necessarily the utility maximizing decision. So I don't really have anything to add here beyond a traditional portfolio management framework, which is to say, you know, classic portfolio optimization, there's really only two inputs. What is the correlation of this asset to the rest of your portfolio? And what's its expected value? So in my view, Bitcoin remains probably the highest expected value asset on the planet. And I, I don't mean to be hyperbolic. I'm sure there's individual equities that will outperform. I'm sure there's, a, a, you know, individual things will outperform. But in a, if we're talking about, you know, Bitcoin almost as an asset class, um, I would personally bet that Bitcoin likely performs every other asset class over the next five, 10 years. So it should be a large portion of my portfolio. And it is correlated. It is a risk asset. I'm not going to pretend that it's not, but it's certainly relatively uncorrelated compared to most other risk assets. So the correlation, for example, between convertible bonds and equity, uh, Bitcoin has a much lower correlation to equity. 
Bitcoin certainly has a lower correlation. Like if you're an endowment, your portfolio is basically 70% U.S. equity. Not literally, but in, I, I, I did this analysis for a living uh, five years ago. And when we, when we tried to break down our exposure and that of other U.S. endowments in the simplest risk terms, it was basically largely U.S. equity. Because even things like a convertible bond fund or ultimately equity-like, um, you know, real estate has correlation to U.S. equities. We could capture 70% of the entire, uh, you know, we could explain 70% of the variance with just U.S. equity. Um, and so Bitcoin, as an addition to any endowment portfolio, is radically diversifying. Uh, it is positive correlation, but as we know, if you add an asset with 50% correlation, you get, you know, that, that is diversifying. Um, so extremely high EV uh, and plus diversifying, it should be a very large position. The reason I'm not saying that every endowment should have 30% of their endowment in Bitcoin is two things. One, I'm not naive about the bureaucracy. If an endowment actually did that, the likely outcome would be as soon as Bitcoin dumps 30%, there would be an investment team meeting, the CIO would get fired, and they would sell all their Bitcoin. So there is a bureaucratic element here where I as an individual can tolerate, basically, with your personal portfolio, you don't have reputational risk. You don't have a bureaucracy to answer to. So, you know, to, to be long-term successful as an institutional investor, you have to be able to stay in the game. You have to not get fired by your LPs or your board or whatever it is. And that means sizing things such that, you know, when there are drawdowns, uh, you're not forced to liquidate the position or, or get back capital to LPs or, you know. Um, so basically, I would advise institutions to allocate an amount that is as big as they can, subject to... If this thing corrected 70, 80 percent, would you be sell, would you be selling at the worst possible time? The rest that's of us really... don't have to worry about getting fired by our LPs, but instead by our families. So I guess that's just the uh, the marker there in terms of uh, being smart. It, and it is real. Like, um, you know, it, that conversation is real. I mean, people see it. Um, <laughs> And my wife is like, are you sure you should still be holding this? I mean, it is it is a fascinating dynamic. Um, Ari, I mean, it's, I, we could go on forever with you. I mean, it's been a great conversation. I mean, we wish we talked a lot about the upsides of Bitcoin. And I know we could have a long conversation of all the risks in Bitcoin, um, but we're going to run out of time. So I'm not sure we can do that. But um, where can people stay in touch with your views? Because um, there's a lot lot here. Uh, you know, it's funny saying this, but Twitter is probably the best. I'm at Ari David Paul on Twitter. Um, I, I, I don't generally, I don't have like a single place where I push out essays or anything. I, I do the occasional podcast, contribute the occasional guest essay. But um, yeah, so I follow me on Twitter and then anything I do, I tend to post there. So like I'll post this podcast, uh, one, one, you know, uh, a link to it uh, there. Very good. Well, this has been fascinating. We got Will Peck, head of emerging technology. We're going to continue this Bitcoin conversation. It's timely. You're going to hear a bull bear debate coming up. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, Sanager Dion Simpkins. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.